And now, Grantland Sports. Yes, a big day in boxing. I'm Rafe Bartholomew, the features editor at Grantland.com. I'm joined by Brian Campbell of ESPN.com. BC, your boy, Mr. ESPN, Brian Campbell, what's going on? What did you think of that press conference today? Oh, man, if that doesn't get you fired up, if this song to kick off this press conference doesn't get you fired up, you're in the wrong sport, you're in the wrong time zone, you're in the wrong time to be alive, Rafe. 52 days to Mayweather Pacquiao. We took another giant step closer. I am so fired up for this. I get down for this type of pomp and circumstance. I can be bought easily. For sure, Brian. I mean, I have it on good authority that last night Manny Pacquiao was driving around L.A. listening to No Easy Way Out in his Ferrari, having flashbacks to being knocked out by Juan Manuel Marquez, to all the vile things Floyd Mayweather has said about him, steroid allegations, all that stuff. He's brooding in that car, and something something explosive is going to happen on May 2nd. But before that, I have to address something, a little name change around here. Last week, we were called the Championship Rounds podcast. This week, and from here till, I don't know, here till eternity, we'll be called The Ropes. Why? Because David Jacoby, the producer of the Grantland Network in charge of podcasts, videos, TV shows, who knows a thing or two about this, told us to. And like Keith Thurman says, you don't go into McDonald's and tell the man who's working there how to cook a hamburger. Well, you don't come into the Grantland Network and tell David Jacoby how to name a podcast. So, Brian, welcome to The Ropes. We're The Ropes now. It just feels so good. It just feels so natural. Thank you, know? you David Jacoby. Exactly. Thank you, David Jacoby. Fantastic. But, dude, let's get a little, like, let's get a little right into this thing because something happened today. I I mean, it happened like 15 minutes ago. Floyd Mayweather Sr. is still downstairs in the plaza at L.A. Live holding court with fans chanting Mayweather. Oh, getting maybe getting a little digits or what do you think? If I were him, why not? He's the pound for pound king in his own way, but we look today was the the one and only news conference ahead of the May second super fight between Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Manny Pacquiao. It was held at the Nokia Theater in downtown L.A. and Rafe, you were there, so forget what I have to say about this. I want to know firsthand because I haven't had a chance to talk to you. This just ended. We know there was a red carpet involved. What was this thing like? Yeah, Brian, it was a a pretty ridiculous scene. They set up the red carpet. I mean, for people who aren't necessarily aware, the Nokia Theater is where they hold award shows like the Grammys, the ESPYs is there every year, the Emmys, uh, not the Oscars, but pretty much every, every other major award show has been or is held there. And they set it up the same way for this Mayweather-Pacquiao news conference. Uh, and it felt like a big deal. I mean, they, they said they had more than 500 uh, media requests. Today, the, they were saying that more than 700 media people were in attendance. It didn't look like quite that much. But, you know, I took one picture when they were up on stage together, and it was just a sea of screens and cameras. And then all the way down the, down in front on the stage in a spotlight, two little guys who are going to feel like the biggest guys in the world on May 2nd. Uh, and this was a full-on red carpet event, literally a red carpet event. I mean, it held the sports world's attention for for as long as it lasted. It was stream, you know, it aired live on SportsCenter. It was streamed everywhere. This had that big fight feeling of the 1980s, the early 90s, all over again. Major media turnout, the whole world paying attention. It was like the perfect appetizer to really prepare you for what the craziness of, of this fight is going to be like. And you know, I can be sold easily with, with with shiny wrapping paper, and I was pretty much sold when. 
they like Jacoby and Jalen say, they gave the people what they wanted because Rafe, it was five seconds into this thing, and these two were staring down. These two were facing off. That's true, but I don't. Did Floyd really give the people what they want? I mean, I, I, what I wanted was Floyd to come out as full on Money Mayweather. You know, I, he could be wearing a wife beater and a and a, or I should say a tank top in Floyd's case, uh, wearing a tank top and a, a TBE hat. Come out there and start jawing in Manny's face, make Manny crack up, burst out laughing, do a Manny thing. I mean, really pump up the 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 energy in there but in terms of you know it was great just to see them on stage it's real now it's more real it feels you know more real than it did before and this is coming up on us really fast yeah and you know we it's not like the measurements of each fighter weren't known to the public beforehand we knew you know we knew Mayweather was like you know two inches tall or like a mm. five inch reach advantage but you still never know though until you see the two fighters actually face off and stare down and you know as we know in the build to this fight Mayweather and Pacquiao hadn't even been in like the same room you know before that Miami Heat game, sure. you know, just over a month ago. To, so to see them finally face off, I think there was something there that was enticing. They stood at a respectable distance apart, you know, a lot further than, than most. I mean, they kicked it off this way, which was interesting. So you didn't get the there was no trash talking, like you mentioned. You didn't get the intense stare into each other's eyes. That part was pretty anticlimactic. But they did hit us with a little surprise. Floyd and Manny were standing in front of this large curtain, and then out of nowhere, bang, bang into the room, <laughs> and Leonard Ellerby's goatee shows up as the curtain rises, and the dais is behind him, and we got kicked off. And, and you were there, so what was the feel of the crowd? Did did it in any way equal? Once I mean, it's a, a press conference are boring. I mean, you get right. to see Richard Sturm's uh, perm. That's I, he looked the like bit. I was thinking he looked like Nick, like nineteen eighties or early nineties Nick's era Hubie Brown up there. He was kind of a, a, a oh, subtle, memes, a sneaky the, favorite of mine. Oh, the, not only Hubie Brown, the uh, the Golden Girls memes that were going around with him <laughs> on, on Twitter were. What was the older one's name? I mean, it was fantastic. Oh, uh, that's why it's better not to be at the press conference and just to be on your computer. <laughs> you missed the show for sure. But I mean, was there a buzz that that was palpable that that you? felt in the build-up or even during it? Um, well, the thing is, this was not an open-to-the-public event. It was a press-only event. So even though they had 500, 700 members of the media in there, and of course, in boxing, member of the media can mean a lot of things. I mean, I saw guys dressed with, with giant uh, giant sort of weird fake Rasta hats on. <laughs> I, really, some, some true characters that you kind of only get at a boxing press conference. But still, uh, it, there was also that sort of like, oh, we're just the media. We're not going to get too amped over this. If, if it had been like a Vegas weigh-in crowd with people just losing their mind, uh, then it could have felt even more emotional. But, you know, at in the same breath, Floyd did bring Justin Bieber on at the end, and that, that gets every crowd going. <laughs> It looked like a five, you know, it was, it was a, they, they posed for a picture afterwards. It was, it was a row of all the heavy hitters business wise that made this fight happen. You know, the fighters, Les the promoters, and the managers, Justin you know, Bieber. Les, Les Moonves of CBS. And then there's Justin Bieber and he's kind of, he was kind of dressed like, who did he look like? He had like the dark black hat on. He almost kind of looked like Johnny Depp or like, uh, like he was like the bassist in the Kings of Leon or something. Like it was just sort of like random. This guy, you know, guy just showed this scruffy looking guy showing up. It's like, which guy in the lineup does not belong the most? That, that part was interesting, but. We saw them face off. You know, like we said, nothing really came out of that. We know that Floyd was the bigger guy. It didn't seem by too much. We The, the necessary rightful people talked. Can, can I give you my big point of what I took from this out of everything else? Lay it on me. It was almost like one big, happy, dysfunctional family. 
Like, it took so long for this fight to get made, and there were times when a lot of us never thought it would because the egos in play were, like, all-time undisputed egos in this sense. Like, how could a fight worth this much money that would mean this much to the sport not happen? You know, take five and a half years to happen. Well, now it's happening, and everybody sort of got along in, like, a real weird way. I mean, like, what you didn't see was the... The, the live broadcast that was streamed, mm-hmm. you know, on every channel was hosted by HBO's Karen Mulvaney and uh, Showtime's Brian Custer. Both of the heads of each network had their time to speak. They played highlights of both of the fighters. And the way that everyone interplayed during the, the media conference, the way that Bob Arum kicked things off by reaching out and shaking Floyd's hand and they're laughing and smiling. And he's saying, you know, we're, Bob said, you know, we're all one big happy family here. And. <laughs> It was all just kind of like, even after Freddie Roach made made maybe one of the only rare, if barely borderline controversial comments in this whole presser, you know, when he basically said, you know, we plan to knock Floyd's ass mm-hmm. out, he still like apologized for it afterwards, and Floyd just kind of chuckled in like a calm, nice manner. Did you get that feeling from there? No, for sure. And even in the moments when they did sort of break script or break the sort of we're all getting along vibe, it was it was tongue in cheek. It was uh, it was Aram standing up and making the sort of slam. Uh, jab at Steven Espinosa saying, well, I guess we all have our own opinion. Uh, or it was or it was Leonard Ellerby acknowledging Floyd Mayweather Sr. as the great trainer of Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Sr. standing up and then Ellerby moving on to give the stage to Floyd Mayweather Jr. And so I remember we were like, let Floyd Sr. speak. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like Floyd Sr. is the crazy uncle who you need around, but you don't really want to give too much of the floor. You know, watch out once he starts drinking. Stuff like like that it did have that family uh i uh, not necessarily middle america family but uh you know the family we all have somewhere and it felt good because it felt like for one time in boxing cooler heads were prevailing and it's something that's just so foreign to boxing right now business wise and and people making the right decisions not just for the sport, but financially. Like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it was a no-brainer to make this fight. I'm glad they finally didn't. It was just weird but amazing at the same time to see everybody on the same page, to see Bob after he sort of snarkily replied back at Espinosa with the comment you mentioned, looking at Floyd and saying, you miss me, right, Floyd? And everybody, you know, laughing. It was sort of like being at the table at Thanksgiving with the uncle you hate, and there's grandpa in the corner barking things out, making fun of people. But everybody's getting along, and everybody's loving it, and everybody's on the same team for once. And maybe that doesn't really mean anything in the big picture, because, you know, they're doing it for money, right? But no, I, I mean, this I is think, a good thing, No, though. man, this... tomorrow, tomorrow, we're all, like, the entire boxing community, everyone. I mean, boxing heads, hashtag, Floyd Mayweather, the money team, Al Heyman, Pacquiao, we're all joining hands in Pan Pacific <laughs> Park here in L.A. to sing... Kumbaya, and you know we're just gonna pass around. <laughs> we're gonna pass around Keith Thurman's flute and play oh, some yeah. pe- some tunes on it. I mean, that might just, double as a peace pipe. I'm not sure. I, it would make a sense of a few things. Um, all right, but what does this? What does any of this mean? Tell us about the actual fight that's coming up. I mean, like it's all nice. Like it's nice window dressing. It, it's sort of cool to see. But so what? What does this tell us about the fight? Not a lot. It didn't push the, the, you know, the narrative or the script really too far. I mean, Manny's comments were, you can pretty much throw them all out. I mean, Manny's, you can write Manny's comments, but for this is, this is the secret of Manny Pacquiao's <laughs> Twitter for, for the last however many years, right? Is someone else can write them and they all sound the same and you're yeah. never getting them wrong. Fred wrote him a good speech, you know, about being a, thanking God, you know, all the stuff you're right. going to expect. I want from, to thank the Lord. Yeah. I want to make the people happy and God bless the Philippines. God bless the 
fans got, you know, a thank you, blah, blah, blah. You know, done. We're out. Uh, the, the only one who almost came off the rails was when Bob Arum somehow worked in a Holocaust reference. But that's fine. We got and past that. a very, very interesting version of uh, the history of World War II in the Philippines. Yeah, and how Manny was somehow a general in the Army. Did I take that? that, if, read that well, the wrong I, if, I were, if I were Bob Arum trying to make, and part, this is just me, if I were Bob Arum trying to make a sort of historical reference to the to great Philippine warriors, I personally would have taken Lapu-Lapu, the uh, 18th century Datu in the central Philippines, who <laughs> slayed Magellan. Uh, I mean, he may not have thrown the weapon that, that killed Magellan himself, but his people, and he led the charge in the battle that killed Ferdinand Magellan. That's who I want to associate my man with. Well, I just, I, just, uh, I just woke up from the same slumber I was going through when Bob was giving the same speech. What the heck's going on here? Can we, can we right. get back on script, Bob Arum, and the rest of boxing and get back to this fight? Everyone's no, it was entitled to their own opinion. <laughs> it was anticlimactic from that regard. But at the same time, there were a couple things you can pull through here. Look, I really pulled that, that Mayweather was calm and confident. I predicted and sort of expected that he might throw out you know, a jab, maybe talk trash, maybe even doing some, something in the stare down to just – just, you know, take the first punch, strike first blood, sort of show, you know, that he's the, the dominant fighter and he perce- perceived himself to be in this situation. He didn't necessarily do that. He made one comment which sort of stood out above the rest to me. Maybe the only psychological seed he was saying when he sort of said, look, one thing I do know about any sport, when you lose, it's in your mind. If you lost once, it's in your mind. If you lost twice, it's in your mind. From day one, I was always taught to be a winner no matter what. And he rambled on a little more like that, you know, and that was sort of his way of saying, look, Manny, you've lost before you've lost a handful of times in fact i don't know that feeling you're resigned to knowing what that feeling is like you're going to feel that feeling again you know he delivered it so calmly that it wasn't much of a trash talk but what do you take from that well i i I mean at the time the way he his delivery i couldn't even really get that point from him i was just sort of like what is he mumbling about like (laughs) the way because i mean the, the way you explain it makes sense honestly until this moment i was kind of puzzling over what he was trying to say with that uh and and so for me it was i was really just trying to think of what was Floyd's because this is Floyd Mayweather. We always just assume that he has a master plan for for how he is presenting himself and and playing every step of a fight from the moment it's signed until the end of the last round. So I was just trying to figure out what is he trying to do here? What is his what is his 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 uh his goal in sort of showing up so like mumblecore Floyd May, Floyd Mayweather uh and well, and just l- acting sort of very detached and very sort of drained of energy. The only I can pull from that as well is that I really believe uh Pacquiao has Mayweather's respect. Like mm-hmm. this is real. Like like and what I mean by that is, you know, Pacquiao's almost gone out of character. He, he was on a bunch of ESPN platforms today when he visited the the ESPN LA uh, studios before the presser, and he actually kind of came out of character and predicted a knockout a few times, did a couple almost pseudo-religious statements of, my Lord is going to deliver Floyd into my hands, you know. He's been on Philippine TV saying that Jesus will make Floyd be more aggressive in this fight, and that that will, of course, play to Manny's favor. Yeah, and then he said you'd feed the five, feed the 5,000 with two fish. No, he didn't go that far, but uh, it was he went there, which was a little off script and out of character. I thought Floyd was going to equal that, and he didn't. He didn't do that at all. So it showed me that, you know, he Floyd, Manny has Floyd's respect in the fact that 
I believe that Mayweather understands the brevity of this challenge of what this really means to him, how dangerous Pacquiao is to his O, which he is, of course, we, you know, we talked about ad nauseum, mm-hmm. how, how much he's gone to protect that. And I, I think that's a good thing. You know, he, he's not wasting time talking trash. He's not showing that he's not, you know, meant to, he's fo- he is focused, you know, and, and that stood out to me a lot. He did throw a, one little shot afterwards when he was being interviewed by Brian Custer on the, on the feed right afterwards. And he said, you know, everybody keeps talking about how this fight happened. This fight only happened because because of me. And that was sort of the only mm-hmm. time he broke back into the the character of the villainous Mayweather. You know, we didn't see that at all. I saw a very respectful Mayweather, a guy who who really is going to be ready for, you know, almost a guy who's saying without saying, I may not have waited Pacquiao out, but I was preparing for him and now is the time and now I am ready to, you know, for this for this challenge that will define me. Yeah, one of the things that he said in a press conference he had before the official press conference with news media was that, you know, this fight doesn't need any selling, so we're not going to so I don't need to sell it. And may, that sort of seems like the way he's approaching it. He's like all of the all the sort of antics and the animation and whatever he would do to pump up an opponent and make it seem like a, a fight against Robert Guerrero or even Canelo Alvarez was a, was a, was as big a deal as it needed to seem. Well, this fight is already way past there, so he he can just sort of let it let it be as it is, and and that's it. So yeah, we probably won't see him talking into stacks of cash, you know, on a on a preview show or necessarily, uh, you know, n- none of these these scripted sort of elements. Maybe some fake marijuana. None of that this time around. I you would not necessarily. I would not put all of my money on that, but. Uh, <laughs> At least today, we saw a a not in full sell mode Money Mayweather. Now, okay, so he's focused, but there's a lot of like sort of uh, rumors that have been floating around the the training camps leading up to this point. None yeah. of that really got addressed into in this uh, news conference today. But as much as I think Mayweather's focused, I'm not sure I believe all this talk of oh Floyd, you should see in in training camp Floyd's knocking dudes out with body shots. He's hurting sparring partners. Where do you get down on that on all that kind of talk? Man, I, this this I don't believe anything that any training camp ever says. There's no point in it. Uh, it just it's it, you can never tell. There's too much misdirection or it doesn't matter. I mean Floyd. I remember. On is either all access or twenty four seven. They almost always have some one shot of some guy, go, some poor sort of patsy walking in to spar against <laughs> Floyd Mayweather. Then they then they close the they close the doors. They, and then the guy comes out looking like he got run over by a truck, you know. And and it's like, damn, what did Floyd do to him? He's Was Floyd is going to be a beast this time. And then you know what happens in the ring? You get you know that you get a, a technically immaculate performance from Floyd Mayweather, but you know you don't see Marcos Maidano or Canelo or whoever. Or you know, walking, they might be mentally defeated or something, but they don't look like you know they just got hit. They just met like Robert De Niro's baseball bat and Goodfellas. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I buy that as much as I buy the fact that before what the last eight Manny Pacquiao fights, Freddie Roach has said we're definitely getting the <laughs> knockout this time. We're third round and fourth round knockout. I guarantee. I've never it. seen Manny this good before. <laughs> and even though Floyd, you know, one comment Floyd did say in today's news conference was that he predicted a quote action-packed fight. No, I don't know. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I think I still think the best chance for Floyd to actually win this fight is to is to get on his horse and to do his you know his typical pot shotting thing. I think that's that was the the very rare moments today of Floyd actually trying to be a promoter and sell it. Well, that may be true, but yeah, you're you're not counting the prayers of of millions of people around the world who are going to be willing Floyd to be more aggressive in this fight, and then you know then it's just going to be a war. <laughs> no? no, that's what I heard earlier today at the press conference. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, um, one of the things that did come up in the press conference that, that is maybe a little more plausible, or, uh, Freddie Roach was talking about uh, his sparring partners, what he's got planned for Manny. Uh, he mentioned a Finnish guy who does a great Floyd Mayweather uh, impression in the ring, which uh, we'd all love to see someday. Um, but really the guy who, who was most talked about and, and we've already heard a little bit about is this mystery man who used to fight in Floyd Mayweather's camp and is now and has left the gym and is at some point in time going to spar with uh, with Pacquiao before the fight. Just to translate, uh, American fans, that was Pacquiao. You were saying, right? Uh, that, that was that was Manny Pacquiao. Yes. Okay. Is there a way before we go forward? Because I've had some people stop me on the street about this. Is there a, a, a pronunciation a Filipino for Mayweather that we're not getting right on this side of the? Uh you know, I mean, it's still Mayweather, I guess. I mean, if, uh, I mean, I, I apologize for putting on an accent here. It'd be uh, Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> Something like a little sing-songy, a little, you know. But you know, I mean, I mean, English is widely spoken in the Philippines, so it, it's uh, it's Mayweather, and Mayweather's name has been around for six years. So, you know, people can people are pretty comfortable with his name. All right, all right. Back back to the script at hand here. So <laughs> you, we're talking about. Uh, Mystery sparring partners? Is it a mystery? Is it a mystery to you? I, I yeah, I don't know who it is. I mean, who? How many people could it be? Who? Well, well, all right, just pick anyone. Who do you think it could be? Uh, it could be a realistic or a total, you know, out of left field choice. Who? Who? Who do you think Freddie Roach is bringing in that has experience with Floyd Mayweather and could spar with with Manny Pacquiao? Now we all assume it's somebody who was in the Mayweather camp of late, right? You know, like a money team member who was maybe exiled. Probably. I mean, that 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 that's pro- that would be the the right assumption. That's the smart way to think about it. You know, who I I hope it is who. Who's the one guy professionally who can make a claim at least? Not besides Jose Luis Castillo, who's the one guy professionally who could at least make a claim in trial that he defeated Floyd Mayweather Jr.? I know where you're going with this. Uh, I oh. actually believe that Robert Guerrero once made this claim as well. <laughs> but after saying that Floyd ran for 12 rounds, but uh, <laughs> Rostash, you... let me come at you with this. Paul Spatafora. Would you love like a WWE type turn here where, where Spatty just comes out in a mask and just pulls it out and was like, I set out the blueprint 15 years ago on how to defeat Floyd in a sparring match after he has not been training and I've been, you know, peaking at training camp and come out and there just happened to be a camera there. And then he was teaching the fine arts of fighting Mayweather to Pacquiao. That'd be fantastic. I, you know, I, I mean... You got Spadafora. For me, I think there's another guy. He wasn't exactly in the Mayweather camp, but he was in the Mayweather gym, and he did fight a Mayweather. In fact, he landed one very unorthodox punch against Mayweather. Of course, this was Floyd Mayweather Sr., and the guy I'm talking about is internet troll Charlie Zelenoff, uh, who <laughs> sucker-punched Floyd Sr. Uh, but he has some experience inside the gym, and he too could give Manny some good rounds in sparring. I mean, we've all seen what he can do to like his wall in his basement he can punch the hell out of that thing and like floyd he still claims he's undefeated <laughs> the last video i've seen all right so assuming it's neither uh spatafora nor charlie z uh who, who do you have any idea who it could really be and if it will actually make a difference i don't know it's not gonna make a difference this is right. all 
some attempt at drumming up some sort of narrative to have during the pre-fight. And like sort of Floyd talked about, this fight sells itself so much. We know their backstory so much that you don't need that. Mm -hmm. And there's probably not going to be any of that. I would love if it was, you know, Zab Judah sort of turncoating because we know like he's sort of working with Floyd a little bit. It would be nice sort of, you know, he was the last guy to Southpaw to have like real success against Floyd if he would suddenly show up in Manny's camp. Most people think he deserved a knockdown in that fight. Yeah, you know, exactly. Well, he definitely deserved a right. knockdown. The glove did touch the canvas. So if the if the glove don't hit, you no, we're not try it out. Yeah, we're not going. There. It's got to be your bull. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, you know, there was the guy who was exiled from uh from team from the Mayweather promotions recently. He's a welterweight. What's his name again? Uh, was it Luis Avila? Luis Arias, maybe. Arias. Arias. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, could be, but that's not even a name that that really would would resonate at this point. I think that that whole theory is sort of out the window, and, and we can move on to the next uh, theory of whether you believe it's true. And that's if let me let me put it out here, conspiracy theorist is Al Heyman, the representative of of the man, the mm-hmm. advisor of Floyd, paying off potential Manny sparring partners not to show up. <sighs> I mean. As has been reported. I, it ha- well, that, because that's what Freddie Roach has said. I mean, the thing, if, you, if you're not going to believe what comes out of Mayweather's gym, you probably shouldn't believe what comes out of Manny's gym uh, and what Freddie says. Uh, of course, it, it could be real. It could be true. It wouldn't be the craziest thing I ever heard. But what? it's another one of those what difference does it make things. I mean, yeah, who cares? These, n- neither fighter is going to find a sparring partner who even comes close to approximating the other's style, what it's going to be like to actually face that guy in the ring. So, you know, as long as they're getting their rounds in, they're in shape. These guys, I mean, they have more than – yeah, they have more than 100 professional fights between them. I think they know how to prepare for a fight, and this is the biggest fight of their lives. They're both going to be prepared. And you're not going to sway extra, you know, paper va- pay-per-view purchases by by putting out another, you know, some fake fabricated thing in the build-up. Look, we're ready for this fight. Like my man Canelo once said a couple times after a weigh-in, <laughs> I was born ready. And, you know, you know, no commercials needed. Let's just do this fight. But today was a nice kickoff to sort of get you at least excited for the pomp and circumstance of the carnival atmosphere, the full-on sports world and casual fan world and non-sport. You know, everyone coming together yeah. for, for this Super Bowl World Cup type atmosphere. I'm, you know, explosively excited. For sure. I mean, if, if they could get more than 500 members of the media to apply for credentials to get into a press conference that lasted about 20 minutes and had almost no action and no news break in it, uh, then imagine what the actual fight week in Vegas is going to be like. It's going to be amazing. All right. But as we we head closer, Rafe, I just do want to ask you one question. Is there what's the biggest question do you think facing and I'll get I'll throw Pacquiao you big pacing facing Pacquiao as he prepares for this fight what's the one question do you think above all he has to answer in the in the training camp and the build up to this Brian I gee man I don't know I mean he he just needs to it's the same as it was last week he he has to he has to he has to figure, he has to be able to to catch up with Floyd and and I, I you know I don't have a good answer you tell me. Yeah, you know, I think you're right on there. Just it's just really utilizing that speed, and it, I think it's just dialing back into the Pacquiao of old, and that's a tired narrative that we've seen played as, as we mentioned before so many fights. But he's going to have to be that guy of old, and I actually think this time around he has the the right amount of motivation for what this fight means, mixed with 
if you're ever going to see a time where Manny might dial back into the ang- maybe the anger-fueled explosiveness of that guy of old, and there's people that argue, Skip Bayless, one of them, that because of the religious conversion, he'll never be that guy again. But I think if there's one fighter that's going to dial that back, it is Floyd. So I think Manny's certainly got to got to pull that out. Well, that's for sure. I mean, the one one thing that always sparks Manny up is getting tagged right in the face with a, with a, with a clean punch. And no one lands more clean punches, at least to the naked eye, than, than Floyd Mayweather Jr., so I am, I can't imagine many moments in this fight where Floyd catches him with a right and Manny does that thing where he shakes his head, you know, bites down on his on his on his mouth guard and pumps his his fist together and it's like let's go uh, and then he comes right back at him and that's kind of oh. what I, that's sort of a best case scenario for this fight. Uh, you got anything else? I'm trying to move on here. I'm trying to get back to my judo list, man. It's oh, my, keep, my franchise. Keep the train moving. All right. Well, so. Last week, last Saturday, uh, we got to see a little update on our the, pro- the the progress of our judo list, which is the list of fighters who we want to see get knocked out in humiliating fashion. Uh, it didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, Zhou Shiming did lose, who we wanted him to. Uh, he lost to Amnat Runrong, the Thai champion who defended his his belt. Uh, but he wasn't knocked out. It wasn't a, a really resounding victory. And and the crazy thing was, I ended up feeling like it wasn't the Zoshi Ming loss that I was hoping for. Like I was like, dang, I wish he had won so that he could have fought in someone like Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez and gotten just you know truly plastered. Uh, this was uh, this was sort of a you know a convincing victory, but a but a honest boxing match that he just lost. And let's reiterate: this is your list of people you I'm want sorry, to see splattered. Yeah, I don't wanna, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to bring you into my my sordid game here. But look, has there ever been a fight where you almost more confidently could have predicted corruption that would play out in, in the scorecards? But you know, I, I have to say to the judges, and a lot of people have said this: congratulations to them for for rightfully calling. You know, we thought that Amnot Runrog would have to do sort of double the effort to get the win. We know he wasn't a puncher. We know he was in an uphill battle. Yet he was awkward. He was consistent, and Zoo just didn't throw enough punches, and it cost him in the end and I'm glad actually that it cost him in the end because even though I give him credit for going after this fight after six pro fights and top rank moving him so quickly he deserved to lose that fight and I'm, and I'm glad in that sense that he did because he still got a lot to learn well I'm calling for a rematch so he can avenge it and then finally move on to face Roman Gonzalez oh you don't want to put him in there with the chocolate I gotta you don't see it do that. Uh, but there were more uh, I would say I think it's fair to say more significant fights to most American boxing fans uh, and those took place on NBC if you didn't if you hadn't heard this before it was the first time primetime boxing was on NBC since 1985. Did you did you hear that last week at all for the PBC yeah. and NBC debut? If we just forget that the contender never happened, then that's accurate, right? Well, I mean, that, that was – I don't even – I guess that's I, – I, the contender is a, is a reality show. I mean, they, they were real fights, but it's not like a, like a real boxing event. Come on. It's that seven-round Manfredo Mora one. That meant something to me. Come on. <laughs> I'm glad it meant something to somebody. <laughs> Yeah, Al Heyman series, it kicked off after much hullabaloo leading up to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to say, when the when, when that opening credit started and you saw the live shot of the MGM Grand from Las Vegas and you hear Al Michaels' voice kicking it off, it felt like a big deal, Rafe. It really did. I was happy to see it. I think in the end, the, the card did provide a good amount of hits and misses, though, but just as much as – the negatives didn't hold the PBC back from its potential. Equally, I don't think this card did anything to save boxing or, you know, or push that for envelope further. But I do think overall, you got to look at this as a positive. 
Yeah, I mean, look, it did a good rating. What they had more than it peaked at more over three million viewers. That's more than a boxing show has gotten in quite any time I can remember in recent years. Um, there's nothing, and and they won the the eighteen to forty nine demographic. It was not a bad thing. Uh, the fights were, you know, about what you would expect from from a pair of decently matched fights. One worked out really pretty well. One didn't work out that well. What else? It's it sort of it is what it is, you know. And, and there was so much saving boxing going into the the lead up to this fight as part of the hype around the PVC uh, movement uh, that. I, the whole time I just couldn't stop thinking of the, the sort of now famous Larry Merchant line from 2012 when, when he said, you know, nothing will kill boxing and nothing can save it. It is it, – you know, this is just – it turned out to be like a boxing card. That's all. Exactly. And I think it, it – you know, it gave you good fights on paper that played out pretty well. I think that, that – that bears well for the future if they obviously if they can consistently make good matchups mm-hmm. and that's going to be I think what decides you know the, in the long run how this plays out but I think immediately the the major parts to be honest that I didn't like about it were more sort of about the broadcast about some of the uh, some of the commentary some of the decision making of the PBC with the bells and whistles that they threw out and not as much about the actual product which I think is a good thing because a lot of that stuff can be tinkered with you know whether you liked. Uh, some of the, whether you like the fact that the fighter ring walks came out, they were solo. I did not like was, that. All right? I did not I, like that at all. I, I, that that was weird. One, I like ring walks. I like to. I like wondering what music are they going to play. What you know, who's going to walk out with them? I like you know. I mean, I don't like Justin Bieber, but I like when Floyd Mayweather walks to the ring with Justin Bieber. Exactly. Uh, and I like the different people in the car. I like seeing Boo Boy Fernandez walk behind Manny Pacquiao. I like seeing what rapper. Adrian Broner is going to bring to the ring with him. It's a team. Ga- it's more of a team game than people realize. I get the effect of wanting to see a guy walk out solo, you know, gladiator style to the ring. But if you but- want a guy to walk out gladiator style, you don't make him walk down like the Americans did with Disabilities Act ramp <laughs> next to your stage, which is what they had them do on the PBC show. It was bizarre. That's why it was hit or miss because you like the the big production of those large screens in the background that yeah. had that WWE feel with the stage there, and that's where they started their sort of pregame show to begin it. And you, but then it just sort of lost that when they're coming, they're not coming out to the upbeat songs that each fighter normally has. You're coming out to not to get on our guy, but you're coming out to some like Hans Zimmer composed, you know, orchestral. It just didn't match up. I mean, Hans Zimmer is really just known as that guy. You see his name on the credits of every movie and say, oh, shoot, Hans Zimmer. You My know, man. it's not like not many people remember Hans Zimmer. I'm sure he's got a, a mantle full of Oscars. But I mean, you know, that that doesn't do anything for me, you know? Yeah. The same thing with there was there was a ring announcer who wasn't in the ring. He was sort of announcing from somewhere else. That didn't do much for me as well. But I, you know, back to my point on that. That stuff can be tinkered with. That stuff can be changed. That stuff will actually change. You would think to a certain degree from broadcast to broadcast. Whether you're watching one at one PBC show on NBC, the next time on Spike TV, the next time on CBS, you're going to see probably a different mixture, of mm-hmm. course, of different announced teams. And you can say what you want about the you know the the kickoff NBC announced team, which produced a lot of hit and misses. You know you don't want to get on the guys because look. You're paying Marv Albert for his voice. You're and you're paying him for uh, at 74 years old for the chance that people are flipping through on a Saturday night. And as they're flipping through, because sometimes you get three seconds to, to hold yeah. a viewer, right? You know, they're flipping through. They hear that voice. They go, oh, whoa, if, if, if this much legitimacy is tied into this, this fight must mean something. So I appreciate what that brought. I thought, you know, at times they did leave Marv hanging out to dry a little bit in, in Sugar Ray Leonard as well. But, you know, that stuff's going to get itself worked out. Uh, the actual fact that we had 
pretty darn good fights on regular TV for the chance for, you know, non-serious boxing fans to take notice and then want to see that guy fight again. That was the the real storyline for me. And I, and I thought it was a success in that regard, even though, you know, the first fight played out ra- pretty much awfully because John Molina just didn't come to play. I mean, I would push back against that. I think that it was a decent Adrian Broner performance. He showed a, a lot of his offensive skills. Uh, John Molina didn't do what he needed to do to make it a more competitive fight. But I think a lot of people knew that was a possibility, uh, including know, the matchmakers. You know, he didn't even go for it though. He was, you know, he was throwing one punch, one punch around. It felt of like, course, I mean, yeah. But I mean, that's what that's what he does when he can't figure out how to get off on a guy. I mean, we saw who was it? Klimov. He did that against on yeah. Friday night fights. I mean, John Molina can lay an egg, and I think that part of why he looked so great last year in the losing effort to Lucas Matisse is because Matisse came at him and basically made him fight for his life. Uh, and he eventually, I mean, thankfully, no no lives were lost. But uh, it was it, he Matisse is one of those guys who would just stand there and be like, yeah, you can punch me because I'm going to punch you worse. Uh, no, that's a good point. And Broner moved. But Rosetta Stone, i got to tell you the one thing that I was upset about the most when it comes to the telecast. They pulled the plug on my guy and your guy, Joe Goosen, the, the king of the Canadian tuxedo, before the start of the 12th round with Molina down, you know, 11 to nothing on all the scorecards. And Joe Goosen giving his patented, you know, you better effing get inside on him now type of speech that he gave to Diego Corrales, that he gave to John Molina when Molina rallied back to knock out Mickey Bay. He was about to give that to Molina, and the, and, and the camera pulled away right in mid-sentence. That was almost unforgivable. Well, you know why? It's because it's because Joe Goosen looked at the cameraman like he's about to kill him right before then. And he's <laughs> he like, oh, never mind. I'm sorry. But but side note, I mean, if you could party with one dude with, with the flowing, greased-up hair and the uh, in the denim jacket after a fight, we got to work that. We got to work man, that. Man, if, if I can find a suitable boxing party on Halloween, I am going as Joe Goose. Uh, I'm getting my double denim on. I'm peroxiding my hair a little bit, and I'm just going in. How cool is that guy, too? How cool is that guy? Anyway, back to it. You know, Molina <laughs> d- didn't come up, but it was a showcase of Broner's ability. And here's why I'm happy for Broner, because the big questions we had coming in that I had last week as well is, who are you, A.B.? Are you a clown prince? Are you a a, a future TV fighter who's never going to really cash in on how good you are because you don't take it seriously? Well, he did take it seriously. He he leaned on the skills that, that make him good, which is the quickness, the counterpunching, mm-hmm. the building off his jab. We haven't seen that jab in three fights. And... I don't even care that it wasn't. It made it a non-exciting fight. It showed to me that he's mature and he's serious about where his career is going. And I thought that was a good thing because this guy is such a character, such a personality. Like you know, people reached out to me this week said, "Hey, the judalist. How can Broner not be on the judalist?" And although he's got judalist qualities, everyone that hates Broner still wants him around, still wants him in big fights because he's just so ridiculously polarizing. Which leads me here to another sort of criticism: they didn't let Broner be Broner in this broadcast, Rafe. It is strange. I mean, what's the point of having this guy who's who's built his career up as this polarizing uh, figure, this guy who sort of, you know, flaunts his money, even if he, even if he's not even sure how much he has. I mean, he's just sort of totally over the top in every way. And then be like, you know what, we're going to need to tone it down. I mean, this is, this is, bro- this is broadcast TV now. Uh, I mean, I think we love boxing because it's full of characters, whether they're, they're, honorable people who or at least they come off as super honorable guys or guys who come off as jerks i mean it's full of real characters and and it, it is a shame to grind. see someone losing that you know yeah you i mean boxing has that that dirty side to it and that's part of the charm and appeal you there's only so much you can clean it up and i could understand al Heyman and the pbc in general looking to 
make of the product of boxing more accessible to a mm-hmm. larger fan base. And that's, I guess, what they did by not having the entourages and the music, not letting Adrian Broner go through the can man routine because he's probably going to end up offending four different cultural fan bases. But at the same time, that's also why we watch. And if you're looking to build that 18 to 34 market, which is clearly the most uh, valuable one, especially since boxing just consistently, you know, trends to an older audience, I think you kind of want the trash talking young guy who's going to maybe offend you, right? You want to let him go on the mic. Absolutely. I mean, if you ask young people which boxers they know, Adrian Broner's not far down on that list. You know, it starts with Floyd Mayweather. You might get Pacquiao and a couple other guys before him, but... You know, Broner is a lot higher on the boxer Q rating list than he is on the boxer P for pound for pound rating list. You know, I mean, he he is very well known because of all the world star videos and he's out there online and that stuff works. Yeah, I, I hope he's allowed to sort of be himself moving forward because he's obviously the right guy you want to launch a series with, mm-hmm. the right guy that you want to purposely try to make a star within the series. And I think that's what they did with the placement of him and also the placement of Keith Thurman here. And we just, you know, we do have to get into what does this performance by Keith Thurman against Robert Guerrero do to his stock? How do we reassess it after it, after this performance? Well, it's, it was interesting because for the for, for nine rounds up until that knockdown and, and, and as he tried to finish Guerrero through the rest of that ninth round, man, it, it was impressive. He, I mean, he looked like a scary kind of fighter to get into exchanges with. Like, he would win every exchange and with fast hands, good combinations. He was sort of setting, setting his fighting on sort of his own terms. You know, he was, he was making, you know, when he wanted to get to, Bro- to, to Guerrero, he would. When he, when he wanted to, you know, move, he was. Guerrero really had nothing for him. And then all of a sudden, he just gets gassed in the last couple rounds and looked like really almost alarmingly in trouble. I mean, he still landed some really crisp good counter shots uh, in the middle of those rounds but when he, he was, was he just was just woof, almost you know almost out well he was backpedaling for sure yeah. but i think that, you know that moment of, of guerrero getting tagged and then getting up and showing so much courage to make that a fun fight the last few down, rounds almost may have saved the broadcast in the way we sort of you know we can be so judgmental of, of a first impression and, and it was a good card but i think that elevated it to a a happy feeling afterwards of even though Guerrero lost in a very one-sided method, he almost scored a victory for himself and how he, you know, how he, uh, how he showed himself with the heart and courage. But I don't think any of that did clouded what overall was just a, in my eyes, almost like a breakthrough performance from Thurman because he had never fought on someone on this level. He had never been able to take somebody's name like that and look so good. I think he showed that that was a guy who's tough. I mean, you know, you say what you want about Robert Guerrero. I mean, he got outclassed by Floyd Mayweather, but he's also a, a fighter who, you know, has had a lot of good performances over the years and and maybe and I think it's fair to say he was never his best at 147 pounds but he is a, a, a has a hell of a, a will on him and and just keeps coming like we saw down the stretch of that fight and and Thurman just you know he he outclassed him and beat him up and I think Thurman's showed you he can he can fight every style I like that he had to overcome a little bit of adversity, and I think he's a problem for anybody, Rafe, and I think that goes up Are you up, worried up at all down. about the, the, the stamina possibility no, there? I, I mean, that, not, he, he, that he looked a little gassed in that yeah. 11th round. I mean, He did, and he got tested, but at the same time, you know, he told us he was going to come out hard for six rounds, and he might, or he told me, you know, he might backpedal down the stretch in box and circle if he had to. You know, I thought it, he was tested, but he overcame it. He didn't show me any times he was vulnerable, yeah. but he didn't show me any points where he buckled at all. Yeah, he was never in thing. real trouble. I mean, it was a little alarming, especially in comparison to the first nine rounds. 
but he was never in what you would call real trouble. And I think, you know, quiet on the set, but I think if you're looking for somebody, if Floyd's going to keep winning, and we, we threw Thurman's name out in the past as a, hey, if he ends up proving that he's good enough, I think he's proven right now that he is good enough. I mean, he's not going to get a Floyd fight soon. He's probably more apt to fight a guy like a Khan or a Maidana or, or a, maybe a Sean Porter, but... I think he's showing that he, he's ready for everyone. Well, let's play matchmaker for, for, for Mr. Al Heyman, a remarkable guy, as Floyd said earlier today, and, and, and premier boxing champions. Who's, who, who should Keith Thurman fight next? Who should Adrian Broner fight next? You know, it depends on how slow you're going to play Thurman here. I, of course, we'd like to see him just continue to make another step because 2014 was was a, a almost you know a lot of lateral steps as a lot of Heyman guys did. Those three names I mentioned though, I think are key: Maidana, Amir Khan, or Sean Porter if he's victorious in this Friday's PBC card against mm-hmm. Roberto Garcia. I think either the, any of those three names are, are strong in that regard. I think all three would test Thurman in their own way, and all three are still you know in their in their prime, still in, in prime spots for him. For Broner. You know, he called out Amir Khan on Instagram, and that was interesting. I mean, he said he'd fight him in England. He, I mean, he did the can-man routine, American, African, Pakistan. Uh, <laughs> Pakistan and it doesn't uh, quite work, but it's, it, was a, it was an honorable try. You know, I think that he's in a separate side. If I'm going to try to play PBC matchmaker and get an Alice head, I think that, you know, Broner's in a separate weight class and maybe even in a separate silo. I still want to get full clarity in a still somewhat loaded 140-pound division, and that means playing out this sort of unofficial tournament that has mm-hmm. already started. You know, we're going to get some more clarity when Danny Garcia faces Lamont Peterson on April 11th, and I'd love to see Broner get a chance to fight the winner of that, you know. I don't know. I hope that we're going to keep seeing guys match up. But at this point with Broner, three sort of – comebacky, showcasey fights in a row. It's time now to face a real name, and I hope it's not a name that's just above a Molina. I hope it's a, a, a good leap to an elite level name. I mean, that that really only leaves uh, the winner of Garcia Peterson, right? Is there anyone else at 140? Uh, Matisse, but you know, we well, don't know where that plays out because he's, he's sort of playing on the other side of the street right now yeah. with, with, you know, with Provodnikov and, and where that's headed. I mean, I mean that, that, I'll tell you, that, that may have trilogy written all over it. I mean, that, that fight's going to be incredible. Or, reti- and, or uh, retirement. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, trilogy and then uh, well, nothing, trilogy and a fruitful uh, retirement. Well, Rafe, I think now the big question, though, after only one PBC card, and we have to put on the brakes because – you know, Al's in, Al Heyman has signed two or three-year deals with a lot of these networks. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's a lot that's going to be done. We're going to see a lot of different ratings come back. We're going to see a lot of things that will judge the long-term viability of what this PBC can really be. But from the ratings that we saw, which were solid, they were the, it was the most watched fight on a boxing card on TV since like 1998. But some have sort of criticized and said, yes, but for what Al was paying – which was about five million total in sal, you know, in fighter salaries and all that to put on that card and to pay the announcers and all that. It deserved a higher rating. So, what do you think that this, in light of some of these criticisms that some people have made, most notably our, our good friend Nicole Duva of Main Events, who went to Twitter and put mm-hmm. out a lot of entertaining tweets. She she's a guest on on some of our favorite podcasts. We've we've heard her. What do you think this first card says about the future of the PBC in light of some of these criticisms? Well, I, I don't think that I think that Nicole's points are all very smart. But one thing to remember is that any any sort of business that's starting up, 
especially and you is planning to lose money for a period of time uh and it could be a long period of time like you said they have two or three year deals i mean the they i it would not really surprise me if if Heyman and pbc are planning to lose just be in the red deep in the red for six months or a year even they say that i mean this is a different industry but they say when you open a open a restaurant you shouldn't plan on making your money back for at least a year and and maybe possibly much longer i mean it's just one of those things you put in so much money to to sort of get it out now you can kind of and and obviously pbc and Heyman have not shared the long-term plan True. they haven't they haven't given writers or anyone else in the public a uh, a picture of what the strategy is, how eventually they do plan to monetize this. Right now, all we can sort of see is how they seem to be trying to shaping this monopoly over the boxing business in this country um, uh, by, you know, collecting fighters, collecting fight dates, collecting TV dates. Uh, so they, they're sort of buying up all everything, all the space on the board how they turn that into a profitable profitable business after that is is they're not telling us and I don't really know it's fair to question well, if they will be able to do it because it is sort of like where is the money eventually going to come from here was essentially you know and then people are going to say it's sour grapes whatever the doofus are saying because you know the main events had the NBC series in 2014 right. the, the the year maybe the year before that as well and and NBC of course went at the, as the deal expired went in another direction because payment Heyman's paying him so much money up front their point though is that he's building an unsustainable product because it's costing him so much money to put on these cards where they with lower level fighters put on much cheaper cards and got got ratings on, on Saturdays on NBC that were, you know, somewhat close. You could spend a tenth of the money and get a get half of the rating or something. And they're saying that, that he's changing the game in a bad way, whereas eventually, you know, the, the money's going to run out and it's going to hurt everyone, else chance, everyone else's chances in the long run of getting back on network TV because network TV will essentially say, hey, we tried this and it failed. And, you know, you can understand that, you know. And another big point Kathy Duva had in an in interview she did with Bleacher Report where she said, you know, the major difference in anyone trying to compare this to the UFC is that the UFC just doesn't pay their fighters even close to as much. So there's, you know, there's much more overhead. You mix it with the with the ad money coming in and the fact that you're building all of this toward a pay-per-view to make back the money from the, you know, from the pay-per-view to sort of cut, you know, to even everything out. So if that's the case, what do you think the future of the PBC can be, though? Do you think it's more of a series that would set up pay-per-views in that regard, that would set up the big-time Showtime cards where they do get paid from Showtime and they're not putting money up front? I I do think that eventually they are going to flip the switch back to that to 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 a more traditional model. I think they want to get all the as many resources to drive uh, their competitors sort of not maybe not totally out of business but make them irrelevant to them first. And then once they have all the co control all the chips, then start setting their prices. Uh, yeah. and and maybe they maybe they won't still be on network television, but maybe they'll be in such a strong bargaining position with the premium cable networks with HBO and Showtime or with whoever is still interested in paying for boxing programming that then they'll be able to sort of control the business, control the prices and just, you know, run the ship. Well, here's my take. For a couple of things in play, back to my first point from last week, boxing fans shouldn't be worried. It's not their money. It's not our money. You know, it's Al's mm -hmm. money. You know, boxing, you can argue, was in a much worse state before this PBC idea launched. So I don't look at it as a bad thing. 
if the PBC is successful or even moderately successful and eventually becomes almost like a Monday Night Raw, if we're going WWE, where it becomes a show where you have pretty good fights on it, but essentially becomes a showcasing platform to set up your big Showtime or cable cards and set up your big pay-per-views, but still gives you an entertaining product each week and you still get fights with with bigger name guys or at least you know a, a showcase of a format to hear them talk and all that and it builds toward these bigger fights i still don't think this is a bad thing if that's how it plays out in the long run and i think there's a few more wrestling sort of corollaries you can make here i mean we mentioned i mentioned last week you know is this comparable to wcw and the nwo coming on the scene whereas hey it didn't work out in the long run but hey it created such competition up front even though they eventually went out of money and the WCW and all that, and the NWO storyline ran its course. In that meantime, we got a really, really good product. And I think even if it plays out like that in a bad case scenario, where at least in the meantime you get really good fights, and again, it's not our money, that's not a bad thing. But there's one more wrestling thing i got to mention here. All right, right one stay more. With me on you get this, one okay? more. I get one more. For the success of the WCW and the NWO sort of thing to launch in 96, there needed to be a third man. Remember? Remember who that third man was? You know, it was Bash at the Beach. No, man, was I, was in, I was in high school. I was trying to play, you know, I was trying to talk to girls back then. I wasn't watching Raw. Well, where I come from, either you're slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. But I still had time for this, okay? Uh, you know, the third man in the ring was Hulk Hogan for the famous Hollywood. You know, heel turn, of course, Hollywood with, with, with the Outsiders. Who's the third man in the ring that could bring this thing over the top? Let me give you a guess. He was sitting ringside. And the PBC card in Vegas on Saturday, no one's talking much about him right now as he's sitting out in exile. It's Richard Schaefer. Oh, Lord. Let me tell you some things, you know? Look, of all the the sleazy-looking men in boxing, and there are many, Richard Schaefer may take the cake. Are you saying there's a reptilian vibe? Because I'm not, you know, I may have to give you a, Man, I know you said it, but I, you don't mean I mean, mean it. I didn't know there were that many, you know, <laughs> there was that kind of a, a, a reptile culture in Switzerland. I was just going by total recall, you know, that's all yeah. I'm going by with, with Arnold. But uh, could this be the missing link here? You know, we know there was a lawsuit that got him, you know, exiled from Golden Boy. And there, there's a, there's an undisclosed amount of time in that contract that he has to sort of sit out of boxing. But it's assumed by a good amount of many that he's going to come back. And this guy is a, is a smart dude with big time experience. Could he, if the UFC, PBC things are paralleled, could he become the Dana White, the public face that maybe helps push this thing over the top? Or am I just really trying to find a way to work wrestling angles into this podcast? It's a great angle. He's not going to be the public face. I mean, like nobody, nobody likes that. Nobody sees that guy. Like Dana White is not a beloved figure, but he, he has this charisma about him. Richard Schaefer is a great businessman and he, <laughs> and he's a very, very, very experienced guy who knows boxing and he can get a lot done, but he is not going to be your salesman to the, to, to America. I mean, like we, have a new you wouldn't buy a rug from that guy. All right, oh, look, man. There's the a there there there's a real good fight this weekend. A really good fight card, and it's not PBC. It's on HBO, and it's not on it's not on network TV. It's on HBO. Sergey Crusher Kovalev defending his two light heavyweight belts against Jean Pascal in Montreal, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I mean, this is three light heavyweight belts, dude. Three now. Three. Is, are, are they all real? Well, I don't even know it's a real belt anymore. Let's not even let's not even go down that road. Um, Kovalev, last time we saw him, had just the, the, a career performance, beating, shutting out Bernard Hopkins last November, uh, and 
you know, uh, how excited are you to see? I mean, is this fight, is it fair to call this fight better on paper than anything that PBC gave us that last week? I think it is. Yeah, it's better than any fight that's even been announced yet on PBC. And it's almost a shame that it's sort of fallen under the radar, you know, because as much as we've loved to see that we have enjoyed seeing the rise of Kovalev, there was a point last year after Odonna Stevenson sort of turncoated boxing and went the Haven route that we didn't necessarily think we were going to see Kovalev in a big fight, that he was sort of going to be another guy on an island in this Cold War fighting against nobodies. Well, hey, we got to see him against Hopkins. Now we're seeing him against, you know, the real breadwinner in the division, the real guy who draws a major crowd, a fun guy, a talented, dangerous guy in John Pascal. This is a real fight, Rafe. Suddenly, you know, back to back, this is a real fight. We get to find out a little bit further how real Kovalev is. I mean, believe me, he made a statement in that last fight against Hopkins, answering so almost all of our questions because we didn't know he can box that patiently. We didn't know he had that much craft because he's just been knocking guys, knocking guys through the ring ropes. I mean, that was interesting. Now you have a real challenge because Pascal has sort of reinvented himself. Maybe he never really left, but he's a real interesting dude in the fact that he's has an odd mixture of top-shelf athleticism with a good deal of awkwardness and toughness. Absolutely. Look, I mean, it's it's. I think it's a little more dangerous than people are of a fight than people are giving it credit for because Kovalev is going up to Montreal, a, a, a great fight town that really loves its local fighters. Jean Pascal is a local fighter there. He's gonna come in with a lot of energy, with you know, like ten thousand or more people just screaming bloody murder for him to, to to pull off this upset. He's got some physical tools that could make life difficult in the ring for Kovalev. Like you said, his athleticism is probably a little bit quicker. He's gonna he's gonna sort of he, you could you could imagine Pascal doing a thing where he just he runs a lot and does some and tries to pot shot a little bit and steal rounds. And he's fighting at home, a place where you know, where a city where you kinda of, where Fighters from out of town don't always get the fairest shake. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what you thought about the Adonis Stevenson's knockout of uh, of Chad Dawson up there. I mean, he, you know, it was it was a legit knockout, but they could have given Dawson a little more of a chance to to, to recover. I mean, they called it really quick. Oh, how dare you! That was my man, Michael Griffin, the second best bet ref in all of boxing. He, thought, he's done a really he good job. Him. He did a great job in the Bellu fight up there, but I still, uh, you know, that's going to be a hostile environment, of course. But if there's certain guys where that would be a factor. But I think you would agree with this. Kovalev's just a different dude. He is and a I different think we're, dude. We're but... seeing that a lot the way these guys are wired from Eastern Europe, right? They're just almost like this military back, you know, feeling to them that nothing could rattle them. And I think that that Montreal background will do a lot to sell tickets, make this fight as big as it possibly can be, and raise the overall buzz and excitement. But it won't really do anything. To Kovalev stepping into the ring ropes that you know that night. I don't, yeah, I, I I have sort of the utmost faith in Sergey Kovalev to come in and be sort of the badass we've seen him be over the the last five you know as long as he's been fighting the United States. Uh, he's gonna you know he's gonna be active. He's gonna sort of fight his fight. He's gonna he's gonna let his hands go when he's in range. In and he's really going to look to hurt Pascal like he does like he tries with all of his opponents. Uh, but. You know, I it's just I'm getting some conspiracy vibes. I mean, you know, our we oh, love the Duvas, we love main events, but they are really popping off right now about Al Heyman and PBC and and who's to say that you know there there can't be some some agents, the man with the black hat from way back in the day from DC, the Amir Khan Lamont Peterson fight. Maybe he you know sneaks his way up to up to up to Montreal and does something. You know, I mean, there if you like conspiracy theories. 
and then Sergei Kovalev loses a bad decision this weekend, you're going to have a nice week of conspiracies ahead of you. Well, the key question is, can Pascal go the distance, right? That's really the key question because he's a dangerous opponent. Never he, been knocked out? Never been knocked down. And, I mean, that's that's really key. He's the most dangerous non-Adonis Stevenson opponent for, for Sergei right now in the division. And But the thing with that, though, is I'm not sure we can confidently create a scenario in which he can win, though, because he's going to really have to be elusive and difficult in a way that we haven't seen. Now, to support the possibility of that, you know, he's going to have Roy Jones Jr. in his corner again in an advisory role, and and Roy is his idol. And Roy, you know, Roy's the type of fighter that is is kind of a mold of Pascal in the sense that he was much more athletic than he was sort of uh, refined and skilled. And I like what we saw in Pascal in his fight against Lucien Boutte Mm -hmm. last January. I, I thought we saw more wrinkles. A combination of uh, patience that we haven't seen with explosiveness. I thought he he helped Pascal refine himself in that way. And believe me, Pascal is still legitimately athletic, and he's still going to present Kovalev with looks that no other opponent has shown him that probably can show him. Because I talked one time to Bernard Hopkins trainer Nazim Richardson. I said, you know, why did he have? Why did Bernard have that much trouble at times with Pascal? And, and his response was, "Do you have any idea how athletic this guy is? This guy should have a, a, an effing football in his hand running up the field. This guy should be <laughs> kicking a soccer ball somewhere." And I think what he's sort of saying, I mean, he just explodes in sort of is in your living room before you sort of realize right. he was there, and he comes from awkward angles. But with that said, can we create an accurate scenario, even with his durability, that he can go the distance here? I think I don't know how plausible it is, but there's a scenario. I, I think that that really it comes down to Pascal fighting a smarter and more calculated fight than we've ever sort of seen him 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 do. Uh, it would you know the, he has the athleticism and the speed to sort of you know stay away, pot shot, jump in, jump out, do those sort of things, and and protect himself and maybe steal rounds from from Kovalev. But Kovalev is such a great offensive fighter, he's going to have success at some point in the fight, right? And then Pascal has, you know, maybe too well, I mean, he's never been knocked down or knocked out, so maybe his his heart isn't, a, you know, isn't too big for its own good, but it could be against Sergey Kovalev. So if Kovalev starts landing and and Pascal is like, "Oh, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to show this guy my heart." That could be a problem. But if he could fight the smartest, most perfect fight of his career, I mean, he has physical tools to maybe pull it off. Yeah, but here's the thing. If there's one thing that they both fought Bernard Hopkins in real high-profile fights, and, of mm. course, Pascal fought him twice late in 2010, the, the rematch in in uh, early 2011. So there's a distance there on the, on the version of Hopkins that fought Pascal and that fought, of course, Kovalev, you know, three years later or whatever. But still, it's pretty much – it's Hopkins. So what can I pull from, from correlating the two performances together? Well, I pull that Kovalev is a much bigger puncher. Even though we re- we respect Pascal's pop and his toughness, and he did score two knockdowns against Hopkins in their first fight, which ended up being a draw, though a lot of people thought Hopkins should have won. Mm-hmm. Hopkins was able to take Pascal's best shot, and, and sort of an underreported story in their rematch is that that fight was really close, and that Pascal did land a lot of flush, hard shots that Hopkins really had to dig in and take. I think a lot of people changed the narrative looking back and say, oh, Hopkins won that cleanly. Well, no, a lot of us at ringside scored that a draw. That was a close fight. But Hopkins knew he could take that power and stand in and come back. When Hopkins tasted the first taste of Kovalev's power in round one, he re- he he went right into survival mode for the rest of the fight. So I think that... You know, Kovalev's just that special puncher that guys haven't seen in a while. And when Pascal starts to get a taste of that, 
he's going to have to make that decision of whether he's going to be really brave and have a chance of getting knocked out or whether he's going to salvage it and try to go the distance here. And I don't know necessarily if he's as slick and as difficult enough as Hopkins was able to be in November to stay away for 12 full rounds because when Kovalev gets angry and goes for it, man, that guy's a destroyer. Yeah, one thing I I think that could be come in handy for, for, for Kovalev is he has this – he can – he can fight like he can box in an orthodox manner and be very successful. We see we've seen him do it, but he can also just go into full on, you know, like you said, destroyer mode. I mean, I've seen him score more knockouts while I, while in the middle of a dead sprint at his opponent. You know, like running across the ring and punching at the same time with his feet not even set. That it's it, you know I've never seen people do it I've, like that and and that's the kind of thing you know Pascal has his athleticism and his awkward moves uh, Kovalev may be able to counter with some things that that are pretty awkward and uh, and unconventional but also really really deadly himself oh and I mean he knocked down Blake Caparello with a body shot when he was sort of backpacking it was like a jab I just touch I mean, his liver it just, I, I, mean, I just want to touch his liver. I think we're finding out piece by piece that this guy's next level, that he's legit, that he, you're not wrong to put Kovalev already in your pound for pound top 10, which I have him at the, at the very end of it. I think we're going to find that out again. But, uh, Rafe, just a little side note. Do you think there's with the way that boxing politics has changed and with Stevenson going to Heyman and with the launch of the PBC that we ever actually will get a chance to see Kovalev face Adonis Stevenson? It, I, think, I think it depends on if PBC – plans on making fights outside of just their in-house uh their in-house you know fighters um if they don't then maybe not um because you know i don't see how they have resolved that but if they there are they both guys are running out of opponents at 175 and i know it's a, kind of a hot division guys are coming up We've got arthur what peter beef uh, is fighting oh, yeah. campillo in, in april and he's a he's he's a very good prospect uh there's a uh, Agor Mekonsev. There's a lot of Eastern Russian, Eastern European guys. Can you guys. translate that to me, please? Uh, yeah. A lot of Eastern European guys who look pretty good uh, and could be good opponents for both these guys. But eventually, it's going to be, you know, they still, those guys, those young guys might not come up fast enough to get into the ring with Stevenson and Kovalev. And they might need each other sooner than, than we That's think. That's a good point. Um, you know, because Kovalev's, what, the mandatory for Stevenson's WBC belt. And, and that's, is Heyman going to get him to vacate for that? I don't know. That's what it's going to come down to. I think it's really going to come down to whether, you know, it, it, under the rules, it would be a 50-50 fight and, and it would be mandated. Is Stevenson the lineal champ going to give up that belt? That's going to, you know, we got to get there. He's got to get through Pascal first. But that's interesting. You hope that, you know, that's going to be a big-time criticism of where the PBC is going and where Heyman's going if that does happen. But we obviously have to give that situation the chance to play itself out. I, I'm going to be the optimist today and say I think that that, will, that can actually happen. They just that, don't have enough other guys. That will rub off on people. That yeah. people will say, "Hey, I want to make these fights that they said couldn't be made." I, you know, and and trust the power of prayer could make it happen. Oh wow! Can we get Mommy Dionisa involved on oh, in this? I mean, she, you know, Mommy Mommy D is she she sings Miley Cyrus. She prays the Rosary. I mean, she's the best. Hey, one more thing about you know Kovlov running out opponents. People talk about this from time to time. You think I don't even want to talk about it because it just seems so ridiculous. Oh, I know where you're going. You know where I'm going. It's like the mega G, powers. Triple G, Kovalev. Should we even be allowed to talk about this? It's, it's a like dream a, fight. Look, two it, years down the road, type of thing. It's it's dead. Look, these they've they've sort of risen at the same time. In a not, they don't fight the same way, but they've had similar results. Great power, great punching, great offensive fighters, great characters. I mean, GGG's yeah. you know good boy act and you know respect box all of that stuff. But Kovalev quietly has 
almost can equal that resume of like out of the ring entertainment between you know I mean his interviews his his foul mouthed attack on Donna Stevenson earlier last year his just all the things that he does I mean and the things people say about him I I listened to the Queensberry Rules podcast yesterday that Nicole Duva was on she she was saying stuff like oh yeah Sergey his when he walks into a room full of rowdy dogs they all get quiet because of his aura I mean, what is it that that only happens to people who are like saints and, or 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 like Damien from the Omen? Like you know, animals can sense your strength and get scared. Uh, you know, they, they have people have he just inspires people to say crazy things. I mean, Jim Lampley was on road to Kovalev Pascal saying, "Well." Kovalev does have a sinister side of his personality, and he does. I mean, he's there's something scary but funny, and he's just no got doubt. a lot of charisma. And what? Are, and our boys at the uh, TQBR podcast sort of had a uh, have a little funny thing that they voted. Why don't you want to share that? Well, yeah. In one year, they they voted him the fighter they would um, be most willing to ha- let let take their wives away for a night. You know, if you like an indecent proposal type right, of situation. Right. Yeah. Sergey Kovalev is that guy. If you had to say yes to one fighter, Kovalev was the guy for them. And uh, and I, I can't blame them. I'm not married, but I, I see where they're coming from. Foley in the beard, our dudes. Uh, but, but he, yeah, you know, go ahead. Well, you know, no, no, Kovalev, he also, he's another one of these fighters. I guess we'll get back to GGG, but he's another one of these fighters with great, uh, with a great Instagram <laughs> presence. You know, I mean, you look at the, he pays respect to the, to the, to the actors. I mean, he's got Kovalev and Steve Buscemi, Kovalev, Gerard Depardieu, and our personal favorite, Kovalev and Steven Seagal. The sensei, our guy. Yeah. I mean, and, Kovalev kind of has a Seagal vibe to him, where he's, he's you, you, you can he's really funny, but he also really enjoys breaking people's bones. You, you get the feeling, uh, and you know if you go all the way back to his Instagram deep cuts, there's a lot of pictures of him holding a little baby puppy terrier. Uh, so Kovalev and Seagal have that that connection with animals. Also, I, I don't know. I mean, is you tell you're the you're like maybe the most educated Steven Seagal fan I know. Is Kovalev the boxer most like Steven Seagal? There are some odd Seagalian sort of comparisons there. I like that a lot. I mean, you know, you and I both are sort of unabashed fans of sort of that level of cheesiness, and Kovalev's got a little level of cheesiness going in there. I mean, you can definitely see that from from following him on social media for sure and from hearing his interviews. But uh, should I go right into to my Seagalian moment? Do it, or? man. Give lay, lay some lay some Seagal on me. We don't you have know, much time I, left. I, 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 I got a little thing of, you know, if I can show what, what fight, what Seagal movie does this fight most represent to me? And if I got to pick one that sort of gives me that feeling, it's sort of Glimmer 19, Man. Yeah, Glimmer Man, of course. No, it's sort of 1990s <laughs> hard to kill. And Ooh. I think that, that, you know, it's the second one in the Seagal's core four that he kicked off his career with, you know, and I think that one most describes to me what I feel about this fight in Pascal and not, and not necessarily from the, obviously not from a, from a life and death and a kill sense of hard to kill. But I think right now, Pascal with the durability, he's hard to finish, right? No one's been able to do it. No one's able to floor him. He's also, you he know, kind he of had the- a period in his career after Hopkins where he was in a coma. Yeah, the, not a real coma, right there. Like well, a, he's, yeah. he's also employed some pretty awful beards, like Mason Storm's coma beard <laughs> as well. But you know, Pascal has also been hard to get rid of in terms of the sense that it feels like he's been at the top or close to the top of the light heavyweight division for a long time. I mean, he only won the title five years ago from Chad Dawson originally. It feels like ten years ago, and the fact that he's in there for big fights and he sort of disappears with injury and inactivity, then he comes back again. But I kind of feel like this is hard to kill in that sense because. 
we're all resigned that Pascal will, will pressure him in ways that no other opponent will, but that ultimately it's going to be tough for Pascal to get, get over the corner. You know, it's about mm-hmm. whether he can push Kovalev enough not to get stopped. You know, he's, that's really it. And if I'm going to pick one quote, though, that from that movie that best sums it up, of course, we know the villain, Senator Trent, you know, who had the, he was a, he had the famous uh, catchphrase of, I'm going to take that to the bank. You can take right? that to the bank. You can take that to the bank. Well, I don't know if you saw pictures or video from the press conference that happened today between Kovalev Pascal. I mean, I was too busy, you know, praying with Manny. Well, in the face-off at the end, it was pretty casual, not bad. And Kovalev had a hat on, and they were about to go nose-to-nose, but the hat got in the way, so Pascal grabbed the hat. You know, and Pascal's a great underrated character in boxing, one of the top three best quotes in the sport. You know, remember when he yelled at Hopkins, take the test, and pushed him during that press right. conference? Well, he pulled the hat off Kovalev's head. Nobody crosses that line and grabs over Kovalev. Kovalev grabbed him by the arm, and suddenly they almost had a melee. And I think that's the, the thing that you want to do the least, right? Right, to, Pat, to Kovalev? He's already going to come in and try to— He's already his... a pretty angry dude, yeah. He's he already going to come guy, up— he's, he... he's intense. You know that hole in the ring that the Undertaker comes up once in a while? He's trying to push you back down in that hole. Well, now he has reason to really be mad. And the last time we saw him really mad at somebody was when he did that leaping knockout punch against Ismail Salah, also in Canada. So I think the quote response to Senator Trent was, of course, when Mason Storm, Steven Seagal, turned to the TV set and said, I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator Trent to the blood bank. Dun, dun, dun. And I think in this case, you know, watch out because Kovalev's going to the bank by fighting Pascal because he's the money man in the division. This helps him further his brand, but now he's got a reason to maybe take him to the blood bank as well. And that's my prediction for the fight. All right, man. Well, I think my prediction is not quite as elaborate, but essentially the same. Uh, As much as I think Pascal has some chances to trouble Kovalev. You know, he's got some tools that, that might give him some problems uh, and, and could, I think, really win rounds if he stays smart. Uh, eventually, Kovalev is going to find some success. He's going to probably hurt him. And uh, I think, I, you know, I think, that, I think that Kovalev can finish him. I, I'll, I'll go ahead and predict that, that Kovalev finishes this fight. Either, you know, he's going to stop him, maybe not knock him out cold, but uh, stop him late. I agree. It's going to be dramatic, and it's going to bring a hush over that Montreal crowd for sure. All right, Brian. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for the ropes here on Grantland. Uh, you have any important last words for us? No, I just, you know, let's let's be optimistic. Let's see where this is going because we got PBC on a roll. We got Mayweather Pacquiao coming up. If you can't get fired up for the next 52 days, this is just going to be fun. So just sit back and enjoy it. Just take it to the bank. To the blood bank. <laughs> All right, Brian, thanks a lot. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you to David Jacoby, Joe Fuentes, the entire Grantland Network, uh, and hopefully we'll be back soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.